Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. From WDEV in Waterbury, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint, the public affairs show where we try to explain Vermont and the nation and understand our politics, culture, and democracy. I'm Kevin Ellis in the chair Live at the studios of WDEV, and welcome to everyone listening on the radio and online at WDEVradio.com and on the free WDEV radio app. It's Wednesday, July 26, and there is a lot going on out there. Flood cleanup in central Vermont and around the state continues in fits and starts. Roads are still washed out, basements are still not pumped out, and trash is not totally cleaned out. Farmers are still struggling with their fields, and we are asking, all asking, how we deal with the next one. We're going to keep discussing that issue today with two guests, one a local architect who specializes in sustainable building, and the other, the owner of Bailey Road, a home goods and clothing store in downtown Montpelier, whose business, business, like others on her block and downtown, was devastated. As always, we take your call and emails to hear your stories about the flooding and answer any questions you might have. We are now in week three of flood recovery, and there are lots of questions. The number to call as we take your calls is 244-1777. I've got an open spot right now. If you want to ring me up, we can have a chat. My email is vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. I'm giving Catherine from Moortown the award this week for best call based on her urging of me uh, uh, last show. That would, let's see, today's Wednesday. So that would be Monday when Catherine from Moortown called in asking people to give money to flood relief because it will make them feel better. I had said give till it hurts. And she called in from Moortown and corrected me as only a retired farmer could do. Catherine, if you're out there, thank you for that call. It made my day and my week, and I'm still thinking about it. If you want to top Catherine, get your questions ready and give us a ring, 244-1777. A lot to get to today, but first, there was a meeting at the Barry Opera House on Monday where FEMA officials discussed how they approached this disaster. According to the Times-Argus report of the meeting, it had few answers and more than several people very frustrated uh, with how things were going. They're worried about their property, wondering about buyouts from the federal government and asking for direction on how to prepare for the next flood. You can read more about that in the Times Argus. Tonight, Bernie Sanders and the rest of the congressional delegation, that means Senator Peter Welch and Congresswoman Becca Ballant, will join Governor Phil Scott and other state and federal officials to conduct a telephone town hall to answer your questions about where to get recovery assistance. They will be joined by other state and federal officials. So don't hesitate to join that call to get your questions answered. And don't hesitate to ask questions. It starts at 7.30 tonight, and you can register and get more information at Bernie Sanders' website, sanders.senate. Dot gov. There's a big button on the front page, on the, on the top of the page. Click on flood relief and you'll get the, you'll get the, um, the details. 
The jam band Fish, uh, they of Burlington fame and Nectar's fame, uh, will play two shows in Saratoga next month, August 26th and tw- 25th and 26th, I believe, or 26th and 27th. I'll check that. Um, they'll donate uh, all the money from those shows from the on, I believe it's the online portion and the merchandise um will will be uh will go to their uh water wheel foundation and uh then they will in turn donate that money to flood relief Strafford Vermont's Noah Khan will donate the proceeds of his upcoming Red Rocks Colorado concert to flood relief and um Noah's from Strafford and I spent 10 years in Strafford with my family Noah's a good guy um, stick season, his, uh, hit record, uh, which went viral, um, has been great. He did a great tour of Vermont, uh, a few months ago. Good guy. Uh, it's great that he's doing that. Uh, the National Life Group's live stream Do Good Fest, uh, raised more than 400000 for the Vermont Community Foundation and their flood relief fund, I believe that National Life says it's going to match that. Um, so there's lots going on in in the area of flood relief. Uh, and tomorrow, the legislature gets involved. Economic development committees from the House and Senate will begin examining the damage and hearing from those affected as they think about how to approach this new challenge. Um, pretty ironic that that the House, uh, sorry, the Senate Economic Development Committee, which authored the multi-million dollar housing bill that encourages all to build housing downtown, uh, they will be front and center hosting that hearing. And the issue of funneling all of our new development and housing downtown, uh, you know, is that given the flood in certainly in Montpelier, is that the right thing to do? When we come back, how do we rebuild? Part of that job will be through better design of our roads, buildings, and all-around infrastructure. Montpelier architect Greg Gossens will join us to talk that through. We'll be right back. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. I forgot to say that at the top of the show. I am Kevin Ellis. I'm the host of Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV, where we explore sometimes difficult issues. We're staying with the flood. I know it's a lot, but... That's what we do here at DEV. We've got to inform people. Uh, if you want to call me and ask a question, the number is 244-1777. You can email me at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. We have a special guest in the studio. He is the founding partner of GBA. Yes, that's wow. it. Rebranding. Yes, it is. Yes. Greg Gossens uh, has been a uh, architect a forward-thinking architect around sustainable design and architecture in Montpelier for some 30 years. Uh, he, if if you walk around Montpelier and see, oh, pretty much anything designed in the last, oh, I don't know, 20 years or so, it's 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 likely that uh, Greg Gossens' hand has been uh, a part of that, and he is uh, also civically involved, very involved with all things Montpelier, the downtown master plan, et cetera, et cetera. And he joins us in studio now. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you. It's an interesting and important topic. So 
Let's start with the flood itself. Where were you when it happened? The latest flood uh, yeah. was um, helping a friend who owns some buildings downtown who ended up living with us for a few days because he and his wife also own a really nice historic house downtown. Yeah, so we started out, I was running around town with him, yeah. um, just trying to check on his properties and seeing weird stuff like floodwaters coming out of a building onto the street, oh. which kind of illustrates that a lot of the flooding happens from the basements out up, not from the river out out sometimes. I mean, you know, how that happens, I'm not a hydrologist, but it was a weird phenomenon to see a building leaking out onto the street. Well, my own basement, that happened. Yes. It, it, it just it came through the, the soil. Yeah, I know it happens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's However, amazing. It's, yeah, it's, 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 it's weird, but it happens. So that's where I was. The first flood, the Ice Jam flood, my office was right above Onion River Sports. You know, 92. And I was waiting ankle deep to get to my office, and within a half hour, I was wading out of my office knee-deep in water, <laughs> getting the kids out of school and daycare and, you know. Right. Going up the high ground where I live, up by Vermont College, and then going back the following day and trying to deal with this mess. Uh, how do you think about this at the thirty foot, thirty thousand foot level? We, you've you've experienced it all. I was here in '92 for that flood as well. What what are your first thoughts? What are you talking about at home at the dinner table every night? Yeah, well, a lot of it, and this is with a lot of my colleagues too. Cause and effect. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people don't believe in climate change and global warming being a human factor, but I think more and more people are coming around to this. So the more you get affected by it, the more you believe it. So even the most strident disbelievers are starting to come around. So we know that a lot of these flood events, you know, we've had, was it four of them in Montpelier now and four of them throughout Vermont in the last 20 years? I mean, that these aren't 100-year floods anymore, and they're caused mainly by human, you know, interactions with the environment. So a lot of it is, is okay, so what is what can we do as Vermonters to deal with this? Generally, we're pretty good about energy efficient, efficiency members, measures and stuff like that. Our Achilles heel is, is our global warming footprint is primarily transportation related. That primarily comes from this kind of this um, psyche we have. We want to live in the country. Yeah. Sprawl. Isolated thing. So what's the best way to deal with that? Well, go back to those historic settlement patterns of compact villages and cities with surrounding areas being farms and woodlands and stuff like that. The contradiction is, is, okay, those compact villages are always getting flooded. So why the heck do we want to go back to these compact villages? Good question. But on the other hand, the problem is because of sprawl, we need to stop sprawl. We need to facilitate moving back into the villages. If there wasn't a solution for it, I wouldn't be advocating for it, but we can do it. We can move back into these historic villages, have a great lifestyle in, in cities, too, besides villages, and be flood resilient. And that's where, you know, kind of where our office psyche has been coming from for the last 20 some odd years, or even 30 years, is trying to develop in our standing communities rather than sprawl. So tell us about your firm. Uh, 
you've been around for a long time. Yeah, 40 years, including 10 years in the Mad River Valley and 30 in Montpelier. What, what's the defining mission of the firm? For us, it's um, urban redevelopment, community redevelopment, making our standing communities viable, important, sustainable, resilient. So do you get depressed that 40 years later, your work has not single-handedly prevented the flooding of downtown Montpelier? Of course. <laughs> of course. So, you know, it's like one of those things. So how, how do you – so that gets into the Montpelier. So in, in our firm history, the you know, 25 years or so our firm's been around, actually close to 30 years – We've designed a number of buildings and standing communities around the state, but I'll go back to my hometown of Montpelier, where we've had the most impact. So we've designed five significant buildings right on the banks of Lewinuski. Tell us what not, those are. Not, uh, well, my own office and my own office complex, the yeah. Hunter Mountain Co-op. It's often referred to as the 535 building, River Station offices. Uh-huh. Now one Taylor, which we worked on with Down Street and yeah. the city, and then the district energy plant. Oh, you designed that. Yeah. None of those had had any damage during these any of these floods. So there's a way to be resilient with new construction. And actually, it's quite e- it's not all that difficult with new construction. You know, you, you, the common denominators are you raise the floors to um, some dimension over and above the FEMA flood limit de- designation. So, so like a cities like Montpelier, Waterbury, Barrie, Brattleboro, I mean, any name any kind of historic city in Vermont, a good share of the city is in a floodplain. Right. Because they were all water power. Design cities, you know. Can, can you take us back there? Sorry to interrupt, but sure. take us back 200 years. We 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 established. We we lived and worked next to these rivers downtown because the the river provided power right. for sawmills. It provided uh, uh, navigation so that we could ship lumber and other goods. Uh, it also provided a, a convenient way to get rid of our sewer and our garbage back in the day, right? right and that's absolutely. why we are there. Yeah, and we didn't treat our river rivers or the land around our rivers very well. Right. I mean, that's why most cities there are – I mean, all these projects I'm, I named off, they were all brownfields. <laughs> I mean, we needed to remediate them too. Yeah. Yeah, we, we haven't been – societally, we haven't been great to our rivers. Right. <laughs> Greg, also, I know you're not a, a river guy, but but we have also straightened the rivers and changed them uh, to to uh, and bent them to our will so right. that we humans could uh, do what we do. I mean, as Brian Pfeiffer said when he came on the show recently to discuss his discovery of the bog elfin butterfly, he said, uh, "We destroy things. That's what we do as humans." Yeah. And I think you, you know, you flip on a light switch, you're, you're starting an energy plant somewhere or you're, uh, living off the fruits of the Hydro Quebec development, which displaced native peoples. I mean, it's, it, it gets down to that, but it seems that your job really is to mitigate. You try to mitigate the impact that we humans have on the landscape. Right. From a macro and a micro scale. Right. So. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's 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 kind of tough in that respect. There's no doubt we haven't been great. And as far as like channelization, yeah, 
and that's hasn't been well. I mean, all you have to, I mean, you're, I'm not sure if you're familiar with John McPhee, the author. Very. The book Control of Nature. Yeah. He talks about the folly of the kind of the Army engine, uh, Army Corps. The Corps of Engineers. Approach to taming rivers and what a futile effort that's been throughout the entire nation. You know, so it's great. You know, you know, it, it's a great read and it really shows you, you we, we, we're not going to control this river and we, we need to live with it. We need to let it be historically as much as we can back to the way it was and then live with it rather than try to control it. So like levees, a lot of people said, well, why don't we just raise all the streets, you know, ab above? Well, you know, Seattle did that in the Pioneer Square area. In fact, you can take these really cool tours called Underground Seattle. But that was on the side of a hillside facing Elliott Bay, you know, a different thing. All of our communities now are on these flat river bottoms in the valleys. So like raising the streets isn't going to do a whole heck of a lot, particularly when you balance that against, can we solve this problem in a different way that's a lot less intrusive? And in my my feeling is we can by living with it. Yeah. Okay. Instead of fighting it, live with it. Okay, so give us the Gossens, uh solution to downtown Montpelier. Okay. What do you, how do we live with it? Well, it isn't a Gossens solution because a lot of these things that I'm going to prattle off right now are things that can kind of come out of a FEMA workbook or a lot of other really smart people. Or any so, civil engineering firm in the Netherlands Right. I mean, they've yeah. been dealing with this issue for generations. Yeah. And I'm Dutch ancestry. So, you know, I, I kind so, of near and dear to my heart. But right? nevertheless, they, they fight it, you know, in a different way than we, than I think we should live with it. And so one of the things is with new construction, like I mentioned, you know, raising the floors above FEMA flood elevation by some amount, we usually shoot for two feet. Start with two feet above. And a lot of zoning regs are requiring that right now. So it's not like we're, right. we're on cutting edge with all of that. And that seemed to have served us well. Another one, they're all slabs on grade. There are no basements with all of this stuff. The Hunger Mountain Co-op has no basement. No basement. None, none of the buildings I just mentioned had a basement. The only The power plant had a coal bunker that was below grade that we are now using for a wood chip bunker. And we did what, what's called dry flood proofing with that, where we excavated all around. We basically built a bathtub. Huh. And then all the entries to the bathtub are either, either above the two feet above mean flood elevation, or we have flood gates that can be slid into place in a flood event so no water can overtop those gates. So that's how we did that. That's pretty easy. You know, mechanical systems, heating systems, everybody's high and dry. You might be living on an island, but at least you have your, your warm, your heated, your refrigerator works, your food's not getting spoiled. Yada, yada. You know, it's, you, you can live and you, there's just a holdover right. period. You don't lose power. So all that kind of stuff. The real thing is, what do we do with our historic buildings that one that we near and dear to our hearts? I mean, like downtown yeah. Montpelier, downtown Barry, Ludlow, Brattleboro. I mean, right. communities where we've worked. We had Tim Heaney on the show on Monday. Or uh -huh. it was, I think it was Monday or yeah. last Friday. And we learned a lot. Uh, we also had A&R Secretary Julie Moore on to talk about uh -huh. rivers. Uh, but Tim said he's going to the bank. It's going to cost him $2 million. Um, 
I mean, his building from, from, from Bohemian Bakery down to the firehouse, we were standing in the, yeah, the basement water. Yeah, I was mucking that thing out and stripping out, help strip out Bear Pond books. And yeah. Okay, so what do we do with Tim Heaney's block? Well, we'll go back to the pay part. Let's do what they should do first. Yeah. Because I think the should do is more important and we can find a way to pay for it. Yeah. So first let's, of all, rate, yeah let's talk about what the right thing to do is. Right, yeah. So one is it's pretty obvious. Raise all mechanical and electrical systems above the flood elevation. And if and if the flood elevation is like five feet above the first floor, raise it even five feet above the first floor, not just up out of the basement, but raise it above the flood elevation. The next one is abandon the basements. Really? Just abandon them. Not just better some pumps. No. Abandon them. Just, okay. Uh, totally abandon them. And for a lot of businesses, that's not a big deal. In yeah. fact, you know, the um, the ice jam flood in Montpelier, there were a lot of people that were using the basements. There are a lot of oil tanks in the basement, stuff like that. The second flood, the one we just had a few weeks ago, far fewer had people had stuff in the basements. And a lot of the mechanical systems are already raised. And if they weren't raised, they were on tie-down slabs or tie-downs or something like that. So it was quite remarkable, we're, you know, that – we are learning something, but we need to even go beyond learning and actually really ramp it up. I noticed so what, in Bear Pond Books' basement, what I was mucking out was the city's Christmas decorations. Yeah, exactly. And I was on the board of directors of Montpelier Live. We chose to move, put them there because <laughs> we knew they were dispensable and, sure. you know, we needed a place to store them. They take up a lot of space. And, you know, yeah, so it's an odd. You're playing the odds when you put anything in a basement. Yeah. And I think we just need to get rid of the odds. Just say, abandon the basements. The next thing is after we abandon, we should really fill them in. And how do you do that? Sand, any, any material. Basically, you know, as I mentioned, I saw water pouring out of a basement onto the street. You want to stop flooding from within. So make it so that we're only dealing from flooding from without rather than from within. Okay. Because a lot of the damages from, are from the basement on up. Right. You know, you, you know, and I, we've mucked these things out. We, we yeah. know we've seen it better yet. Fill it in and put a concrete slab down at the ground floor. You can put your squeaky old wood floor on top of the concrete slab. If you really want that for your aesthetic, you know, whatever, yada, yada, you can, yeah, you can put anything on a concrete slab. Then we have a building that can't flood from within anymore. Mm -hmm. Then we're dealing from without. Okay. So then you try, you pick a, a, a dimension, maybe, maybe again, the FEMA flood elevation and say, okay, I want to flood proof my building from without the two feet above the flood elevation. In some buildings, that might be six inches. Some buildings, that might be five feet. There, you just basically do your exterior in a manner that that's basically can hold back water. I mean, you're, and you could do that with floodgates, like at your door. So you, you know, so all these doors for shops open right onto the sidewalk as they should. There are floodgates you can put in, in place. Have your window systems and everything else set up so that they're as floodproof as possible. Sandbagging actually works. Yeah, Sandbagging wouldn't have done a whit of difference in downtown Montpelier with this previous one because the basements were flooding and basically you would have been holding water in the building rather than stopping water from getting in there. Before we continue that conversation, we're going to take a call because we've got Forbes in Corinth. Forbes, welcome to the show. Uh, you're on with Greg Gossens. What's on your mind? Hi, that's great. 
it uh, it always kind of looks like the uh, the gift that keeps giving. Um, this isn't our first uh, real big rodeo here. Um, I have a, other than human uh, interaction, um, what uh, there's a lot of discussion that the world has uh, moved like 3.2 degrees on its axis towards the sun. And then the other part that he could deal with, or possibly answer that one, it would be uh, chemtrails. Uh, there's a lot of uh, discussion uh, pro or con for that, and that would be the seeding um, done by aircraft. Any any thoughts on those as to how that might affect uh, our overall picture? I Forbes, thank you for the call. I, that first comment is above my pay grade. Same with me. I mean, yeah, the, these are questions that there are far smarter people out there than my but I, my little brain can handle to deal with that stuff. But I do have thoughts about chemtrails because I've done the reading, Forbes. Um, what you're talking about is is the United States military seeding clouds called geoengineering, seeding clouds so that we can adjust the climate uh uh, to, to battle global global warming that way. There's also the conspiracy theory that the government is doing it secretly as a mind control project. Um, I've done the reading, so I can I can go toe to toe with the conspiracy people on this. Uh, I, you know, again, way above our pay grade, but I think seeding the clouds to try to adjust the climate uh, is is more human. Uh, uh, intervention in a nature that Greg Gossens, my guest, is saying that we need to uh, live with rather than battle. Let's continue that discussion. So where sure. we, I mean, go team, go. If they want to give it a go, knock themselves out. I don't think it's going to go anywhere, yeah, but yeah, nevertheless, yeah. Yeah, yeah you want to spend ten trillion dollars trying to change the climate? Yeah, I, I, I wish we weren't spend that kind of money, but yeah, yeah. What can I say? Yeah. Okay, so, so back to your other downtown you, you buildings, flood proofing downtown. Berlin or Montpelier or any place, it's more flood mitigation. You know, we have to say we're not going to really flood proof our our standing communities, you know, unless we do something just unworldly drastic. But we can live with it. You know, the, the idea is living with nature rather than fighting nature. And I, I'm definitely in the mind that we need to live with nature and not fight it. So can we make a checklist right here? Uh, because... One of the things that struck me as we were standing in those basements was, um, where's the cavalry? Where was the National Guard? I mean, I'm still kind of asking that question, and I, I feel like people need, or FEMA or somebody needs to go door to door with a five step checklist. These are the first five things you need to do. You need to uh, clean out the basement. You need to dry it out. You need to take pictures. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, down the line, call your contractor mm-hmm. after you the Gossens plan. Uh, after you abandon the basement and fill it in, what do you do next? If you're the city of Montpelier, yeah. Well, I, you know, as I mentioned, then then a lot of this is going to cost money. You had mentioned you had Tim Heaney on uh, the other day, and it's going to cost him seven figures. To yeah, he those. said $2 million. Yeah, to do those things that I had just outlined, which Tim knows because Tim and I, we talk. <laughs> this is a societal problem, not an individual problem. We as a society 
need to basically own up to it. I think we can't do this off the backs of local businesses. You're going to have Sarah Vliesen here shortly. We can't do this off the backs of people like Sarah or Tim. You know, we need to own up to this. A lot of it is, you know, whether you believe in this human causing for this, but societally, this is happening. We should have incentive and funding programs to help us be a resilient society. We, we can't just kind of dump this on people and saying, because they didn't create the problem. Right. Yeah. So you know, we subsidize roads. We subsidize sprawl lifestyle. In fact, we have land use regulations that make it easier to do sprawl than we do for downtown development. You know, we've been subsidizing some of this stuff for a long time that actually, in my mind, caused some of these problems. Now we need to subsidize becoming resilient. So. Uh, can you talk more about that? How have we subsidized sprawl? I'm, ta- I'm thinking about the Barry Montpelier Road for one thing. Yeah. And the planning commission from those days should all be tarred and feathered, it seems to me. <laughs> but they didn't know any better. Yeah, I mean, that was a part of the deal. You know, yeah, downtowns are dead. Let's, you know, build Taft's Corners and stuff. You know, that was just part of the psyche of the day. Yeah. We have land use regulations where basically it's easier to develop. I mean, you, you work with Downstreet, you know. I mean, we can build a uh, a cheap housing box out in the suburbs cheaper than we can build, you know, the same amount of apartments in downtown Waterbury, which we're working on right now. That's and, right. And yeah, so it's, you know, basically the system is set up or, you know, our, our regulatory system, our zoning system, and our financing system set up to do things, you know, quick and expedient and not necessarily right. So yeah. that raises a, a political question. I, yes, I, it I'm, is I'm, political. I'm that's sort of, where it gets weird. I'm sort of like, what, how is this still possible that after the, 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 all these years later, we've known what you just said for a lot, for 25 yeah, years. When I'm, what I'm saying is not, this isn't great. It's not I mean, revolutionary exactly. radicalism. I, I didn't say one thing here today other than maybe the societal ought to pay for it that anybody hasn't who's paying any attention hasn't known for a long time. And yet we still allow uh, we still incentivize uh, through government regulation and the money flow from government building at Taft Corners. Perfect example. Uh, Lake Champlain Chocolates is le- in Burlington is leaving uh, that South End neighborhood and going out to Taft Corners. Mm-hmm. It's cheaper. There's more space. Uh, it's faster to the airport, I guess. I, you know, I, it's why are we still doing that? Yeah, I, I really can't speak to that. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you a number of years ago, we were hired by Efficiency Vermont VEIC to do their new office building headquarters, which is an honor to be selected to do that. They originally were going to do something out in the, in the hinterlands. And yeah. they, they had a, they must have had a soul search. I can't speak to them, but it, you know, from what I heard, they had a soul searching kind of moment. They said, no, let's do it in downtown Winooski. Yeah. To, let's develop in a downtown. Now, in, in the end, now with work at home or something, they, they're just renting in downtown Winooski. So people, some, it doesn't happen all the time, but some people are investing in downtowns. In fact, we just got done doing a large housing project in downtown Burlington for high, for relatively high end. We've also done affordable in downtown Burlington. 
so people are coming around. It's just taking a while. Yeah. You know, we're doing, we did one Taylor in, in downtown Berlin or Montpelier, and now we're doing one here in downtown Waterbury. So yeah. Yeah. People are coming around, but it's, it's still, we got a ways to go. Uh, Waterbury, uh, where we're located is a good example of, uh, we massive, uh, flood during the hurricane. <laughs> Uh, in 2011, they rebuilt the state office building, and it seems that that state office building did pretty well. Did I, I heard it did great. Yeah. Yeah. And so it sounds like we are getting the message. I I, I want to switch to energy for a second. Um, but for, before we do, let's take a call, actually. Uh, Steve in Websterville, you're on the line with Greg Gossens. What's on your mind? Well, yeah, to get, to get back to the fact that the um, – like, like, okay, I, I border Churchill Road in Wedgeville. Okay. Yeah. And, for, okay, I, I've always, when I bought this house in 2001, I've always known that the water was coming in. So what I did when I first bought this house, I went down 20, about 26 inches. But the water was coming way down about four feet, uh, Kevin. So, like, to get back to that question that you had, the water was coming way down that deep four and five feet on my wall. So, I mean, if this is going to be a continuation of what I'm going to experience, and then FEMA hasn't been to my house yet. So, I, you know, if if this is what I'm going to face down the road, I mean, the basement guys, I'm still waiting for them to come. Um, and, and that Monday, Tuesday morning, the water was coming in like 15 different spots. And I had three and a half feet of water in my basement. So, I mean... And 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 in more in different places in in places I haven't even gotten to yet underneath my stairs and, and other places. But I mean, if 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 this, if this is what the soil was so saturated and it was coming down four feet, five feet in my wall, um, so these old houses. I mean, this is my 1870s house. I'm talking. So I guess what I'm saying is 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 this going to be a continuation with these old granite block houses up? especially in, in Websterville. Uh, Steve, I live in, not in one of those old granite houses. I live in an old schoolhouse, a one-room schoolhouse in East Montpelier, uh, about the same vintage. So, Greg, what's the answer? Yeah, and I live in an 1860s with loose slate foundation walls. Um, I had water coming in um, from roof runoff and heavy downpours. It was, it was basically from the exterior, not from groundwater coming up. So it was a little easier to deal with. So basically I just went around and I uh, regraded by hand, my wife and I, as much as we could to pitch water away from it. And I put on gutters, which I always thought, oh, gutters, you know, you can't have gutters in Vermont. I have a metal roof. It'll just destroy them. Well, they've been on now for a little over 20 years and I haven't had to do one thing to the gutters. And boy, what a difference. My basement's been dry ever since. Wow. So there are things you can do. So that's from, again, that's dealing with water from out. And that is a lot easier than to deal with water from in, yeah. from within. And that yeah. that is tough. You know, you basically have to go around and just waterproof your basement. You have to build it like a bathtub. And that, I know it's expensive, but that's, you know, there's no other solutions other than that. Uh, you're very involved in civic uh, affairs and politics and the city council, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I know there's a city council meeting tonight. Uh-huh. Uh, 
I, 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 talking to Tim and others who's on the city council, I can't imagine how they begin this process of implementing what I'm now going to call the Gossens plan. Uh, where do they start? <laughs> where do they start? Well, yeah, I, you know, I think giving, you know, as a community, I mean, I gave you my opinion. We need to bring in some other people, obviously, particularly yeah. the building owners. Um, we have to look at this as a citywide issue. And the sit, and the worst thing would be to say they're going to institute a lot of these things that I had mentioned, or we're going to make them as zoning or, or permitting mandates. Unfunded mandates, to me, just don't work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my wife is an education administrator for years, so she knows what an unfunded mandate is. Sure. It never works. So, you know, so the city is going to have to be part of this holistic thinking and part of a team member to make our city resilient, which means they have the ability to go off and get larger scale grants, funding opportunities. You know, we really need to look at this as a, as a community and as a team to help our city become resilient. You, and this would be true for you're in Ludlow or Brattleboro yeah. or Waterbury, you know, you know, the city has to be a partner in the solution. They can't just kind of mandate it to the few people who are or not the few, but the many people that are often affected. I, I, uh, I noticed the legislature is getting involved. There's an all day uh, hearing by two key committees and they're hearing uh, from everybody across the board. And I know they're just starting, but the, the, I agree there's outside help and expertise that's needed here. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, should the governor appoint a special commission? Uh, I know those are politically sometimes a waste of time and they, yeah. uh, the report collects dust. I cringe, but. A lot of because we're all, we're kind of cynical of let's form another blue ribbon committee to solve something that never happens. Yeah, but yeah, if I, you, I get it. Yeah. But if you appoint the right people and you staff it and you hire a consultant from the Netherlands or somewhere uh, that talks about how we live with this, how we store water, how we root it, it seems to me uh, that maybe the city should do that. Maybe you know, maybe it's beyond the city council's ability. Uh, to deal with in a night meeting, yeah. uh, maybe there needs to be a special task force. I'm not sure, but yeah, it does. It's going to take a deeper dive yeah. than a bunch of volunteers. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. Yes. Yeah. There's no question about it. Greg. Okay. So you, you flood mitigate a lot of those historic downtown buildings. Another flood happens. The water comes through the streets. It, it, it avoids the buildings. Um, we have a lot of surface parking in the, in this town. Yeah. Um, I've always been a critic of that. I, I you know, I want to get those cars out of downtown, but I, I see the other side of the issue. I was on both sides of the parking, parking garage issue. D do we need to do anything with those parking lots? Do we, do we chew them up and, and get rid of the pavement and turn them into gravel? Or, or I'm, I'm thinking of what, um, Northfield did on Water Street where they had the FEMA buyout program. Yeah. And they, I think there might've been one or two holdouts, but most of the homeowners participated in the FEMA buyout program. And now it is a floodplain, you know, it allows the river to breathe back there. And it's, it's, it's kind of a park, but it's mainly a, a you know, a wetland or, you know, it's, yeah. and, you know, maybe, you know, again, here we have to think holistically, maybe some of those parking lots ought to be that. 
but maybe some of those parking lots ought to be housing. But but made like we did at one Taylor, housing that didn't have any damage during a major flood event. So for know, instance, which we know we can do. So for instance, behind the uh, behind the old, uh, it's it's now a pho restaurant, but what we call the pit. The pit, yeah. Um, I've always thought that could be the parking garage, but you could build housing there, but and and do it in a flood uh, protected way. But the, getting the state together with the city to to actually move. and the insurance company and the postal service, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of fingers in that property pie, right? I think everybody would like to do something, yeah, but hurting the cats with all these property owners who all have certain vested interests has been kind of the Achilles heel because we've worked on it uh, for a number of both private and public clients. And there's, there's huge opportunities there. And, now, but there you know, we could do parking. You can do two or three levels of parking and basically say, that's going to be sacrificial. We're going to allow that to flood. Right. You know, because a parking garage, concrete or whatever, you hose her down, you call her down. And, you know, if you move the cars out and if you don't move your car out of it, Tough luck. Too, yeah. Tough luck. Yeah. And then do something above it. Yeah. And there's a lot of opportunities to do a lot of fun things above it. And, you know, housing is one of them. Retail, office, maybe even the rec center. I mean, I mean there's, With there's 50- a lot of stuff that could happen above that part. Yeah. So be thinking creatively. And I mean, here's with this whole idea. We have to start thinking not as a bunch of individuals or individual building owners or homeowners, but have somebody who can basically be the leader whether that's the city or the state or and a special committee, as you mentioned. But somebody needs to start looking at this stuff holistically because it, it's tough to do holistic thinking as a bunch of individuals. It really is. Yeah, it's, that, it's too heavy a lift, even if you want to. You might be the most dedicated, big-picture thinker in the world, but if you're standing alone. Yeah, again, I go back to the city council, I mean, uh, uh, who's meeting tonight, and I'm, I'm tempted to go, uh, and Bill Fraser, the city manager, they're they're concerned with the nuts and bolts. I mean, they're just they trying to get that garbage cleaned up, yeah. uh, potholes filled, uh, basements dried out, uh, contracts with the contractors, FEMA, uh, the legislature, the governor's calling. Uh, well, and during the flood, you know, Bill needed to coordinate, and Bill and his staff needed to coordinate. You know, the the fire station was, you know, flooded out. So they needed to set up places to keep our, our, our emergency services yeah, in yeah. place. Same with dispatch. And they were, yeah. I know they were working with Barry. I mean, so, yeah. I mean, it, it was a, they don't have time. They to were think. scrambling right. to keep basic city services going while the rest of us were helping the individual landowners muck their basements out and, yeah. and to deal with it. And Mont- I have to give a lot of credit to Montpelier Alive. Yeah, and Alec Ellsworth at the parks. <laughs> Alec yeah. Ellsworth yeah. could I mean, be there, the hero. There were some people that really stood, you know. Yeah, yeah. I can't really and, stood tall in Montpelier. So we're yeah. talking, we're Montpelier centric, but this is a whole state. That's right. Issue. So let's let's not just keep on focusing on Montpelier. Uh, and typical uh, Alec Ellsworth, I can't get him to come on the show. He's a modest guy. You know, he's just well, the, theoretically I am too, but here yeah, I am. So. Yeah. <laughs> well. Well, we're gonna, we will get there, but, uh, I, we're gonna need this kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think as we set off the air, I, I think our attention is focused yeah. now. And so certainly the political leadership is focused on it. Um, yeah. so we'll, we're gonna have to live with this river. Yeah. I, you know, I, um, I'm reading a book right now, um, 
by this uh, Juan Valaro about, and he's talking about the devastating earthquakes in Mexico City. He's a yeah. Mexico City resident. And he had a quote that really struck with me. He said, at the, at, at the aftermath of an emergency, he doesn't trust people who talk, but don't fear. Yeah. <laughs> and right now we need to, we need to talk and act and fear at the same time. Greg Gossens, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. I okay. It. We'll, we'll, we're taking these issues on every day. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. We'll be right back. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Hi, I'm Kevin Ellis. We're back. It's Vermont Viewpoint on the friendly pioneer WDEV, your Vermont news station. If Vermont business owners are going to recover from this devastation uh, up and down the state, there's something of a roadmap being drawn by our next guest. Just a few days after the flood, Sarah DeFelice rented out Caledonia Spirits in Montpelier on Barry Street and threw a party. She sold damaged clothes, which washed and cleaned, of course, and sold other inventory, all at huge discounts. It seemed to me a win-win. It helped her move inventory out of her store and raise a fair amount of money for her store and her cleanup effort. But something else happened. The place was jammed, and not just with bargain hunters. The community showed up to party, to let loose after several days of out-and-out trauma because of this flood. One business owner who I talked to, walked in the entrance and told me, this is the first shower I've had in several days. Uh, and it was a great time had by all. And we welcome Sarah DeFelice to the show in studio. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. So let's start with the party. Yes, what, we needed it. Tell us about that. What? When did you have the idea? Why did you do it? Um. I think since the flood, my um, my brain's just been going like a mile a minute. And I was just thinking about all the challenges that were being posed to my business, one of which was needing cash and fund. But another business challenge was needing to move the inventory. I, um, especially in clothing retail, a lot of my inventory is seasonal. So not only was the inventory damaged, um, but I was left with things that weren't damaged that are off season. By the time I open, it will be fall. My entire store was summer. So that inventory just isn't valuable to me anymore. I needed to move it really fast and I needed to find a place big enough. I thought I was going to have like 50 people. I told Caledonia, I told Bar Hill that I'd have 50 people. And then the next morning I was like, well, maybe it'll be a little bit bigger. Like 75 people will come. I should probably get a second bartender. And then the community like showed up. I think we had like 350 people come and you're right. It wasn't just for bargain shopping. No, it was the first time we could see each other outside of our dirty clothes and the masks and like just sweat stained faces. Um, we could just hug each other. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't introduce you properly. Uh, you are the owner of Bailey Road, which is a clothing and home goods store on uh, Main Street in mm -hmm. Montpelier. You started 
on the other side of Main Street. Um, and several a year ago, uh, yes. you jumped over to a much bigger space. Yep. That had to have been a financial risk. <laughs> it was a financial risk. Tell us about that. Um, so I opened my store, my first store in 2014. I was right out of college. And so it was a smaller space and I just focused on women's clothing. And then the pandemic hit when I was about five years old in that space. And I realized that my demographic was changing. People weren't wearing clothing the same way. They weren't purchasing clothing the same way. People were working from home. And I realized in order to survive as a retail store, I had to evolve. And so that evolve came by including more home goods and gifts because people were spending more time at home and they were nesting. But in order for me to evolve by carrying more categories, I had to have more square footage. And so that's when I made the move across the street in March of 2022. And like Tim Heaney, who came on this show uh, on Wednesday and said, because of the flood, he's going to have to remortgage his whole properties to, to all of his properties to yeah. uh, you yeah. must have had to go to the bank to do that as well. Yes. What's interesting is I carried flood insurance for seven years at my previous location oh. because I had to take out um, a loan from um, community capital. Yep. And so I carried flood insurance for seven years and then my premium went up substantially that it made more sense for me to pay off my loan because it would be less money for me to pay off my entire loan than continue to carry flood insurance. Then I moved across the street. I had another loan from community capital, but I didn't need flood insurance because this wasn't in the flood plane. And so, yeah, I don't know what the question was, but... Well. <laughs> But it took an, I did have to go to the bank. What's surprising is I didn't need flood insurance this time around. Well, that's crazy. Crazy. I mean, add that to the list of crazy. Yes. Um, yeah. Okay. Where were you when the flood happened? Tell us mm. about that day. Yeah. I was in Maine visiting my sister who had just moved back from California and she had bought a home. And so my oldest son and I went to visit. And I remember seeing the radar and seeing the storms come and we did this cute little video on Instagram and I was in my red rain jacket and I was like, we're going to be closing at two today um, because of the storms. And then I watched the radar again and I got a call from my wife and I saw how bad it was going to be. So then I got back on Instagram and said, we're closing immediately. And all I could do was watch at that point. Um, and my wife and some of our friends and my staff came in and moved everything up from the basement. We had just gotten a third of our entire Christmas inventory delivered. So we had a ton to move out of the basement and they moved it up about a foot off the ground on our first floor. And it just wasn't enough. It wasn't. Nope. Water came up about four feet. Did you lose everything? I lost 75% of my inventory. The majority of my custom fixtures um, my losses in the six figures. Did you lose the Lithuanian uh, dish towels that I buy from you? <laughs> uh, they were washed and sold in the flood sale. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yes. Well, let it be known that I got an alpaca blanket. Uh, oh, also good. I was fighting uh, Maya, uh, my uh, our neighbor Maya, uh, for one of them. Luckily, there were two left. Seventy percent off. I think I got it for 30 bucks. Yeah, so it was like 100 and 
$140. Yeah, it was $140 blanket. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when did you get back to Montpelier from Maine? Um, it's all a blur, but I think we were allowed to be back in our stores after 3 p.m. on Tuesday. I'm talking about personally, like you're in Maine, you're stuck there. Your business is now underwater. Right. How do you get in the car and drive back? It's, it's storming. It's raining. What did you do? We, I put my son in the car and we drove home the next morning bright and early and I stopped at, um, Lowe's and I didn't know what I was getting into, but I just bought fans and bleach and gloves and trash bags because I had a feeling that a lot of those things would not be available. And so I just went to Lowe's, my six-year-old and I had carts and we were just filling it up and I just wanted to be prepared as much as I could to see the damage that I was going to walk into. And what did you find? It was destroyed. Um, yeah, it was destroyed. I, I think I just stood in the doorway for a good 10 minutes to kind of just seeing everything floating and just wet and gross. Um, and then I realized I couldn't, I couldn't sit in that moment of being frozen. Like I just had to get to work. And that's kind of where I've been since the flood is just head to the ground, just day by day, get as much done as we can. Okay. And what are you doing? It seems to me that the first two steps were let the water recede or Mm -hmm. pump it out. Then you empty out the basement. Then you empty out the first floor. Then you get the fans to work and you start, you hope for good weather and you start drying things out. Yeah. Uh, is that what you're, where, what stage are you at now? Yes. I think the first stage was tearing down and yeah. emptying out, which was hard. It's really hard to see. People say it's just things, but these things are my mortgage, my childcare, my groceries. Um, so the first part was hard. The teardown was hard, but I'm in the waiting stage now, which is brutal. It's, it is. It's brutal. Emotionally. Because, yeah. Because yeah. you, it, there's some sense of, being productive when you're hauling things out. But now it was waiting six days for the walls to dry. So our humidity is less than 15%. Um, Drywall's going back up, but we need to tear down the floor. Um, So it's just the waiting game. And so this is where my creative and innovative ideas of how to get my inventory out to people kind of kick in. Our guest is Sarah D. Felice. She's the owner of Bailey Road, the home and home goods and clothing store in downtown Montpelier, which suffered a uh, devastating uh, flood loss. Uh, she is the pride of Northfield, Vermont, a native, I might add, right? Yes, yes. Grew up on a farm in Northfield? Bailey Road is named after, my store is named after the road I grew up on, my great-grandparents' home. If you go down Route 12 into downtown... Mm-hmm. How do you find it? Where is it? Actually, if you get off the interstate exit oh, okay. five and you get to the bottom of the access road, you yeah. take a left. Oh, you take a left. Mm-hmm. Oh, down that way. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. Uh, okay. We've reached the period where you're standing in your store. Or, well, you're looking at your store and it's filled with three feet of water. Yep. What do you think of next? Um, we, I called in my support group and we got everything out and I had, um, Pellergy, Andy Booten just nicely donated his warehouse space. So I was able to get all of our goods out of the store, which was important to me because 
I didn't want mold growing. I didn't want there to be any smell. A lot of our product is clothing or some kind of textile. So it can really kind of soak that in. So our, all of our inventory was out of the store within 48 hours once we could access the space. And then I cleaned out the basement along with amazing volunteers that showed up at eight in the morning to be the dirtiest, grossest basement. Our basement held all of the city's holiday decorations, so there was quite a bit to unload. Um, Wait a minute. Yeah. I was unloading the holiday decorations out of Bear Pond Books' basement. We shared the same basement. It's the same basement. It's the same basement. And so I had the 75 or so huge reeds that you – yeah, a lot. Um, And so that was the first few days. And then I needed to figure out ways to – get income coming in, have some kind of cash flow and move this inventory that we had talked about that not only some of it was damaged, but will be off season by the time I open. So what did you do? So I um, decided to throw a party, which you talked about when we I first got on. And the reason being was because I needed to see my community. I needed to create a space for us to gather after a week of a lot of hard work. Um, a lot part of that was for just to kind of lift me up and feel hugs, but it also was able to move all of this inventory that may have had some kind of flood damage or would be off season that I just had to move. Um, and it was a way for me to bring in some cash because while I was setting up this event in my head was I'm not going to start a GoFundMe. I don't have insurance, but I can do these kind of events to bring in money and I'll rely on FEMA and, and then I'll be okay. Um, it was once I realized that FEMA does not help businesses that I started to get worried and had to set up some kind of donation campaign campaign. You know, the FEMA, I had a FEMA representative on the show. Oh, did you? Oh yeah. And I was a journalist at the Burlington Free Press. I've been a consultant. I mean, I have watched. I was here for the 92 flood. I was here for for Irene. We were living in Northfield in 92, actually. Really? And I drove in up Route 12, and I saw the flood from the ice jam. And, you know, we've spent 25 years hating FEMA, loving FEMA, not understanding FEMA. And Bernie Sanders and Becca Ballant, and Peter Welcher having a telephone town meeting tonight at 7.30 to answer your questions about FEMA. And just go to Bernie's website, Google it. It's really easy. Click on the uh, flood relief link button and you can get on that uh, show and, and, and they will answer your questions. The governor's going to be there too. What do you make of this, this weird relationship we have with the Federal Emergency Management Agency. It strikes me as odd uh, that the president just cannot order FEMA to be nicer. <laughs> helpful. And more responsive and more helpful. Um, mm-hmm. As I said on the show, and nobody's complained, so I'll say it again. It seems like it's very easy for us to deliver bombs to Ukraine and guns, and it's really hard to get cash, 25 grand, yeah, to the Bailey Roads of the world to tide you over, to get it dried out, to get the new floor in, to pay your contractor, to, to do what you need to do. 
Uh, and I don't know. So what's your experience with FEMA thus far? And why do you think we have this love-hate relationship with it? I think it's funny that you said we love them, we hate them, or we don't understand them. And yeah. I think a lot of us business owners fell into the, oh, wow, we just don't understand. I think in my in my head, I just felt like there was support there. And then when we all realized that there wasn't, it was really heartbreaking and we were just scared. That was what we thought we could fall back on. And I am very grateful for all of these community members and um, larger organizations setting up grants that we can access. Because when I realized there's no FEMA money and the only thing the Small Business Association is doing is giving out more loans Loans. that we're still paying off from COVID, that's not helpful. Not even in the littlest bit. We're going to open with more liability. We're going to have to have a larger output of money and our loan payments before we even know if we can open yet. Not helpful. So I asked Tim Heaney this uh, question and his answer was, he was almost shocked by the question. uh, And he said, this is just who I am. Why on God's green earth would you come back? Just move, go to Florida. What's the point? Get the insurance money and go retire. I've never even thought about that. Uh, I'm opening. There's no question in my mind that I will reopen. I love this community. I love my store. It's my dream job. The people I see every day, the team that I have, there's no question in my mind that I, that I won't be back because I will. It's just going to be what kind of position will I be in when I come back? Okay. How are you going to pay for that? That's the hard part. I've, that's been keeping me up is. I strongly believe that I'll have enough money to reopen. What I'm hesitant about is, will I have enough money to have the inventory levels in my store for the fourth quarter, which is our Super Bowl in retail? We need to have an amazing fourth quarter in order to carry us through our worst quarter, which is Q1 in 2024. So it's not that I'm going to tank at the end of this year, but if I don't have a good holiday season, where you'll see me tank is Q2 of of next year. Because I, I won't have enough funds to carry me through our slow time of January, February, and March. So if there ever was a time to not buy from Amazon, <laughs> Wayfair, who are your online competitors? You know, yeah. Wayfair, right? Wayfair. Um, Pottery Barn. Pottery Barn, West Elm. West Elm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If there was ever a time not to buy from those stores and buy from Bailey Road and Bear Pond Books and, well, you can't get coffee online. I was going to say Bohemian Bakery. But, yes. Uh, the time is now. The, the time is when your sign goes up and the lights go on, uh, the time is to walk into that store or go on to your website and start buying your Christmas gifts. Absolutely. Yeah. When are you going to reopen? I know that's an impossible (laughs) question, but we ask those here on the show. Um, My goal is to reopen by the end of August, beginning of September, where the, when I said we're in the brutal waiting game of Of sheetrocks going up today. So that's great. But how long is it going to take for us to find flooring to replace the flooring? How long is it going to take to find the materials? Everybody's looking for the same resources right now. 
James O'Hanlon, the owner of the Savoy Theater, looked me dead in the eye and said, I'm going to be open this Friday. I love it. And he's going to show Barbie and Oppenheimer. Good for him. And I said, you, you are, you, you people are crazy. Yeah. You're going to be open maybe in August or September. Yes. And I've just secured a retail warehouse space in Northfield that I'll open up. Um, as kind of like a temporary pop up that I can keep open. You know, it struck me or it was, it wasn't Tim. It was somebody else on this show who said, and Greg Gossens was referring to it too. We have to live differently. Uh, we cannot just do this the way we used to do it. And the city or somebody needs to buy, own, rent a warehouse space outside of downtown where people can put their inventory. And maybe you have storage lockers. Uh, you know, it's a big, it's a big metal shed and you all have units where you can keep things. I think when there's a tragedy like this, um, it's when those creative ideas kind of come, come to light. And I think the more creative ideas we have is going to make us more resilient moving forward. How do you make your store more resilient? Or are you not even thinking about that in terms of you're just the store. Tim Heaney is your landlord. He's responsible for floodproofing that building. Yeah. How do you get more resilient, though? I'm finding that it's hard for me to think big picture resilient when it comes to like waterways and how to prevent it from coming into the building. But how I can be more resilient as a business owner is having a more resilient business plan and having more funnels of income and ways I can reach my customers that can go beyond my love of brick and mortar, which I will forever have a brick and mortar store. But um my live events on Instagram, my live events on Facebook, these pop-up events. Um, I do a bun. I'm having a bundle sale um, tonight. These are creative ways that allow me to still engage with my people. Okay, so before we get to the call from Jim in Barry, I want to ask you something. Um, how are you doing that? How am I doing it? Uh, emotionally. Oh. You, you are, you've suffered a devastating loss to your business. Uh, you're trying to see your way. You're thinking about contractors and floors and sheetrock and nail screws and screw guns. How are you going to pay for that? And you have the ability to think and innovate on the fly to do a Instagram bundle sale. How are you doing that? I think when I sit too much in the empty, destroyed, damaged store, it really can get you down. But if I can take a walk and just let my mind like roam with the blank slate that I am standing in right now, um, it's kind of fun to see all the ideas that pop into your head. And at this point, why not just try them? Okay. Jim and Barry. You're on the line with Sarah D. Felice from Bailey Road. Welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Kevin. First, I want to just tell you that our hearts go out to you, and and I just uh, commend you on your uh, positive attitude and resilience, and and you know, and the, the the notion that in the middle of all of your sorrow and disappointment, you were able to up with an idea that brought a huge amount of relief, uh, emotional relief to your, your neighbors and friends and 
colleagues. But anyway, Mike, the reason I called was that you said something about mitigate, flood mitigation uh, measures. And I've been thinking about a, a concept that I don't, you folks are not the right ones to ask because you don't have the expertise, I'm sure, but. That won't stop uh, us from commenting about it, Jim. It's true. Well, what I was going to say is it's, it's as good a place as any to plant a seed, but I keep thinking about New Orleans had a levy around the whole city for years. I don't know when it was put up, but it, when it failed during um, the big flood, not Irene, but the one, whatever it was down there, um, that was the, the disaster. But the concept of a levy around the city, and then I started thinking, what about flood mitigation measures at an individual building? Think of a security gate that's waterproof, and obviously it's going to leak a little bit. But you pump it out faster than it leaks in, and that's the way the levee in, in New Orleans was pumping water all the time back onto the river. So anyway, I just I'll throw that out. As I said, you may have don't have the expertise, or maybe you've already researched it, and it's a crazy idea. But I just thought I'd throw it out because it seems to me that you know this has been three times in my time in New in Central Vermont where I've seen downtown Montpelier with several feet of water in it. Um, so it's it's not something that's only a once in a hundred year event anymore. But anyway, I'll let you go and I'll listen on the radio. Thanks. Jim, thank you for the call. Well, our first guest, uh, Greg Gossens, the architect, actually addressed this issue directly, which is you can put flood doors in front of the entrance to Bailey Road or the Hunger Mountain Co-op or and 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 buildings that he's designed and had built in this town and around Vermont, for that matter, have been elevated. Uh, they've got they've got storm mitigation uh, devices, and I think that's what we're talking about here. So, you know, it's harder. Sarah's store is at the lowest. Lowest of the low. <laughs> lowest of the low, <laughs> right there at the corner of Maine and State in Montpelier. And your landlord explained to me that it is three feet, four feet, five feet lower than the Shaw's, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely, you're going to have to have flood mitigation matters. And that's probably about number 10 on your, on your list of recovery. I'm always so grateful for the people who are able to kind of think these big picture thoughts and like long-term plans to help make this not happen again. Right now I'm kind of in the trenches and still thinking day to day, but we need people like Jim from Barry who are thinking big picture because right now I just can't do that. What is the role of city government and you What's that relationship? I know there's a city council meeting. I can't for the life of me imagine how they start talking about this. Yeah. There's, I mean, how do you think about this? There, there are funds being set up. Uh, National Life raised a lot of money. There's, we've raised, uh, Montpelier Lives raised a lot of money. The Montpelier Foundation, that money is going to start to flow. I, I saw Montpelier Alive put apple, grant applications on people's front doors. Mm-hmm. What stage are you at in terms of trying to access some of that philanthropic money? Um, I've applied for all the grants that are currently available to me. Um, and 
I get a lot of my information from Montpelier Alive, and there's so much information out there, and sometimes it's just easier for me to find one source that I can rely on, and that's Montpelier Alive to me. I think the downtown business community in Montpelier owes a lot to that organization because they are organized, they outreach to the businesses, they um, put together, we've had weekly meetings as business owners. Um, Montpelier Live is just amazing. Executive Director Katie Trouts. Yes, call out to her. She's been awesome. Awesome. MontpelierAlive.org, and they are, do they still have their little tent city there right on the corner? Yep, they still have the hub. I think it's going to be changing the looks. It might shrink a little bit in the next coming weeks. What we talked about at the business meeting um, on Monday was while we don't need as many volunteers to help clean out basements right now, in a few weeks we're going to need help moving things back into our store. In a few weeks we might need help painting again. And so I think the influx of volunteers will kind of shift as the rebuild process happens. Okay. So talk, yeah, let's talk more about that. Where are you exactly in the dry out process? Uh, everyone's has these moisture meters that are yes. inside there. Tell us about that. I'm happy to say we are dry, <clears throat> which is great. And that means we can start the next step, which we are putting up sheetrock today in our space. So that will make it feel less empty. Um, Who's your contractor? How did you get sheetrock in your place this quickly? Well, my landlord is Tim Haney, and he has been absolutely, absolutely amazing. But one thing I felt like I could do to help, because he has so many properties that he's working on, is if I can find my own people and then connect him with those people. So I've just been finding all my own contractors and then connecting them with Tim so they could help me build out my space. It's one less thing he has to do. And what are the big you, – you've obviously become a general contractor in, in addition to the CEO of a small retail yes. shop. What There's sheetrock. There's flooring. There's plumbing. There's mechanicals. Electric. What, what, is, what does that entail? Are you moving the mechanicals upstairs? That's um that's a decision that Tim has to make. But yeah. when I renovated the space, we put our main panel up on the first floor. So I believe we're going to be okay with that. Yeah. Um, other things are a lot of my fixtures were custom made. And so I have to have all new fixtures custom made. And that will be my expense. So there's two, three big buckets of expenses that I'm trying to fundraise for. And one is inventory. And I have to come back with the most inventory I normally have in a year because I'm going into the fourth quarter. If I had lost all of this stuff in May and I had to open in June, which is a smaller month for our business, I would have to open with like a third less inventory than what I need to open going into fourth quarter. So inventory is a huge investment that I'm trying to raise funds for. And that should be around $100,000 at cost of inventory that I need to open my store in order to make it through the fourth quarter and bring in the funds I need to get me through the first three months of next year. The second bucket is my fixtures and cabinets that I have to replace. And then the third is all my packaging was in the basement. And so this gives us an opportunity to try to find more sustainable packaging. It just is more expensive. Do, how much do you think this will cost? The the, mm -hmm. the recovery and the fit up 
so you can reopen? I try to be very transparent with my following. And so I put out that I needed to raise $75,000. But as things have evolved, I'm seeing that number growing more to like 125, 150. Sure. Um, it's just really overwhelming to think of that big number. <laughs> Have you raised any money so far on your own? Yep. Um, between the sale that I did at Bar Hill and then my fundraising button, I've also paired up with an artist out of Waitsfield called Katie Babick, and she does these beautiful Vermont prints, and we're selling those to help fundraise as well. I've raised $58,000 so far. And you do all this innovative thinking. In the shower. In the shower. <laughs> yes. And in the car. In the car, on walks, at night when I should be sleeping, my brain is just going. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and again, you think we're going to be able to walk into your store sometime in late August or early September. That's my goal. Incredible. It would be incredible. Yes. But uh, maybe we should kick off a buy local campaign on WDEV right on Vermont Viewpoint right now and yes. commit that Kevin Ellis is not going to buy one Christmas present online. Every single Christmas present will be bought and purchased and, and gotten downtown. And my list is Rome, Onion River Outdoors, Bailey Road, Bear Pond Books, Bookspieler. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good list. I'm missing one. Not sure. Gift cards at Bohemian Bakery. Yes. Capital Grounds. <laughs> Capital, yes. Gr- Capital Grounds. Yeah. Those are the places that I go. Yes. And you can and you can walk through Bailey Road, which I do a lot. You park in the back and you walk through and you sort of spy. You look around and you spy. I always end up at the Lithuanian made linen <laughs> linens yes. in the front. They make the best linen. Are they going to come back? They are going to come back. Oh, yes. good. Great. Yeah, they're good. What am I missing? Uh, what am I not asking you? You know, what else are you facing that we, your neighbors need to know about? Um, one of the most interesting questions I've been asked is, do you think once the camera and lights go away, yeah. we will be forgotten? Yeah. And that kind of like hit me. A little bit. It was actually a question that was asked at the National Life Telethon. And my initial reaction was absolutely not. Like our community stepped up before there were camera and lights and our community will continue to be here months from now. And I have no doubt in that. And so there's some security in that. And there's some peace knowing that um, our community has our backs. And so that feels really great. Uh, our guest is Sarah DeFelice, <laughs> oh, no. uh, and, and she's the owner of Bailey Road. How is your how is that flood insurance <laughs> helping you out there? Not helping me out. Did I already talk about how I carried it for seven years yeah. across the street in my own store? Yeah. And the premium kept going up and up that it was cheaper for me to pay off my loans than have to carry flood insurance. And then I moved across the street. I didn't need flood insurance in this location because it wasn't deemed flood plane. And so I haven't had flood insurance for like, let's say 14 months. And here we are. I want to ask you about government because they, the government plays a huge role here. Um, as a business owner, was the garbage cleaned up fast enough? 
Has government been responsive at the city and state level? Uh, and I know, you know, uh, Bernie and Becca Ballant and Peter Welch were here. It's tempting to say they were just here for a photo op and they, and they left. Um, I think there's two sides to all of these coins, but as a business owner and as a human, has, has government stepped up at all yet or are you still waiting? I think what I've learned through this is that government takes time to yeah. step up. It's yeah. such a big, like I own my own small business and I'm like a speedboat. But when you think about the government, they're so, they take so long to do everything. It's like trying to move a yacht or like a cruise ship. So they just, they take time. And I think in those early seven to 10 days, it really felt like we were left behind because things just weren't moving fast, as fast as we are trying to move down on the streets. Did um, you think the garbage got picked up in a reasonable amount of time? They're still at it. They're still at it. Yeah. There was just so much of it and it comes in waves. So the first wave was us getting our stuff out of the store. They had to pick that up. The next wave is everything out of the basements, have to pick that up. Then it's all the construction debris that comes. So it's not like the garbage is even done coming out of the stores. There's still more to come out. And I think the delay in picking up the garbage on the streets was due to like government being so slow, not necessarily from the city perspective, because I believe that the Montpelier crew that doesn't usually handle this volume were out there as working as hard as they possibly can. They just needed support from the state and federal level. And that took so much time. Yeah. And, and we forget, this is really easy to forget. And I do it every day that, those people picking up that garbage. Well, there's the in the Montpelier folks mm-hmm. and they've got their own homes and they've got their own families Yes, and they're in crisis and trauma. And their town has been destroyed and they right. are literally picking up the pieces right. and trying the hardest that they can. Right. They just needed support and that support couldn't come until certain paperwork was signed or yep. I want to say it's FEMA related again, but let's not go there. Well, there was the delay. You're like, I'm going to go there. There was the delay in which FEMA uh, was demanding that we separate certain of the garbage. Mm-hmm. And I can understand the motivation. You want to keep the batteries and the toxic waste separate from the sheetrock and the whatever. Yeah. But that just seems to be an unreasonable expectation. It slowed things down, that's for sure. A <laughs> couple of days anyway. Couple of days. Yeah. I remember we were cleaning out the, our basement and we had 30 volunteers. We had bucket brigades. We were taking shovels of water, putting them in buckets and hand carrying them out because our sub pumps couldn't reach that far. Um, and then they had us take out all the metal of all, we had a huge pile at this point. It was taller than I was and it probably spanned the length of bear pond bucks in my store. So that's, quite a bit of space. And then we have to go through the pile and separate metal. You did? Yes. I did. My volunteers did. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, What should government be doing next? Cash. And we don't need loans. We need grants. And if that grant application, um, I don't want to say if it could be easy, but not so detailed where I'm saying I lost a size two pair of jeans that were pink and I need a specific picture of that size two pair of jeans that were pink. 
that's unrealistic. That's gone. I can, I can like give you video of my store. I can give you snapshots of the full damage, but needing item by item, it's real, it's, it's unfeasible. Yeah. Yeah. And what can we as your neighbors and customers do? Um, there's the Montpelier fund through Montpelier Alive that you can donate to. Right now, a lot of us just need, um, capital to reopen. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's a lot about capital, but if you can't do capital, keep an eye out of when people do need volunteers to help painting again or need volunteers to help move things back in their store. Um, a mixture of manual labor and financial help is both needed. Uh, what are we, what should the city council be doing in Montpelier? I mean, they're going to sit down tonight and I don't, I haven't looked at their agenda, but it just seems, I, I don't know how you get a handle on all this. The, the list is a mile long. <laughs> the list is a mile long. And I think that's one of those areas where I'm grateful for people who can think big picture, Yeah. but even city council is daunting for me to think about how they can support because I'm just trying to f- figure out how I can get flooring to come in or how I can rebuild my cabinets or thankfully UPS didn't go on strike. So maybe I'll be able to get inventory into my store. There's so many other things that I'm just trying to focus on in my 2,200 square feet space that even city council is almost too big picture for me to focus. I wish I had the energy and brain space to do it. (laughs) Well, that's, that's not your job at the moment. That's other Not people's now. jobs. And I'll be more, I'll be more involved yeah. later on once I kind of have my feet under me, I think. Yeah. Our guest is Sarah DeFelice. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if you, if you enjoyed listening to her voice, uh, go online to her website, baileyroadvt.com. Yeah. Go to her Instagram feed, baileyroadvt. You can search for it and go to her bundle sale tonight. Sale. Never done a bundle sale. Uh, at eight o'clock tonight online, uh, you can lie in bed with your phone and just be on Instagram and buy stuff and buy stuff. And what that, and that money will go to help her, uh, restart her business. Yeah, it's happening. We've gone on way too long and I don't have time to do our closing, uh, but uh, that's our show. I'll be back Friday. Uh, as always, we'll talk politics in Vermont and the nation, my garden, my kitchen, my basement, and everything else on my mind and yours. Our show is produced by me, engineered by Pete through the window. Thanks, thank Pete. you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you to Greg Gossens and Sarah DeFelice. I'll be back Friday, right back here on the Friendly Pioneer WDEV 